Aid spending must focus on alleviating poverty. British public's trust in charities is declining. Funding pressures are increasing. Technologies like blockchain are revolutionising our world. The SDGs are crucial to ensuring no one is left behind. Power is shifting to the global south. The Bondcast, exploring the debates in international development. and welcome to the Bondcast. We hear again and again that the amount of money needed to eradicate global poverty can only come from incentivising the private sector to invest in developing countries. The UK government has made this assumption explicit in its development strategies and public declarations, most recently in leaked comments by Penny Mordaunt, who said that the UK's 0.7 aid spending commitment is unsustainable. As the UK government moved towards higher investment in Africa, more and more aid is being delivered through the private sector. What do these trends mean for the poorest countries? And how can we, as NGOs, break through the political rhetoric of a global Britain to practically and positively engage with the privatisation agenda? At Bond, we've brought together a range of experts to interrogate whether private finance can ever really work for the world's poorest. Joining us today, we have Liz May, Head of Policy and Advocacy at Tradecraft Exchange, the UK's fair trade NGO. Hello. Next, we have Toby Quantrill, Global Lead on Economic Justice at Christian Aid. Hello. And finally, we have Jesse Griffiths from the Overseas Development Institute, who leads on the think tank's work development finance. Hello. Thank you all for joining us today to help go through what I think is quite a complex subject, but feels like a timely discussion to be having. Toby, I'm going to come to you first to kick us off and help set the scene. What is the UK government's agenda when it comes to private investment? Well, I think it's worth considering that pretty much everything we hear from the government at the moment has to be viewed through the prism of Brexit and through party politics as they are at the moment. And I think this is no exception. But probably the most significant sort of statement that we've heard with regard to this was in October last year, which was on the future of UK aid post-Brexit, speech by Penny Mordaunt that she gave at the at the CDC, the, the private development arm of DFID. Uh, and that really laid out their thinking quite clearly. The core message on that is probably summed up as not so much global Britain, but Britain first. And essentially, the argument she made was that delivering the sustainable de- development goals is going to require a large amount of investment, that that investment can only come from private sector finance. And specifically, a large amount of that can and should come from UK-based investors. So by providing financial and policy support to reduce the risk for UK investors and increasing the opportunities for them to invest in a sort of relatively risk-free manner, the idea is to allow the City of London to expand its role as a financing hub for the developing world. And in doing so, sort of also help British investors get better returns. So this is sort of described as a win-win agenda, but there are obviously some some risks and problems attached, which we've sort of tried to, to, to highlight uh, recently. In essence, I mean, we see this as sort of almost calling for a reimagined British empire for the 21st century, where the, the, the city of London's reach will extend sort of ever deeper uh, across the world. And, and that's something that uh, probably needs a bit further discussion. Okay, I think that's a really kind of useful summary of where we're at at the moment. And just bearing that in mind, it seems, as you've said, Toby, that there's a real shift happening to encourage more private sector investment through kind of leveraging the aid budget and this real shift to a kind of Britain first narrative and what that means 
in light of Brexit. So what are some of the key trends that we're seeing as part of this approach? And what evidence is there to suggest that it is actually the missing piece of the puzzle as it's kind of claimed to be at the moment? So I'm happy to come in there. I mean, there's two key trends which I see at the moment. The first is the delivery of kind of normal aid programs, if you like, but delivering those through business, through the private sector and through kind of quasi-private sector institutes like CDC that Toby mentioned, but also the Prosperity Fund. And I think our concern with that approach is that the results so far, if we're trying to look at the evidence, is that there's been questions raised about how effective that is at delivering development objectives. So uh, the Independent Commission on Aid Impact, ICAI, has been quite critical of how DFID has been dipping its toes in this kind of private sector water. It's rated a number of DFID-led strategies, the private sector development strategy and its work on business and development as red or amber. So really raising questions about whether this is a good strategy in terms of delivering development impact. So that's one trend I see. And then the second, which I find more disturbing in many ways, is this kind of idea that we can in some way rebrand existing normal UK outward investment as in some way contributing to sustainable development, to the sustainable development goals, and in some way recast it as uh, being part of our aid programme. And I think the critical thing there is we need to recognise that not all investment and not all business is created equal in how it can deliver on development objectives. So um, it's absolutely critical that the policy frameworks are are right and that we have the right structures in place to make sure that, number one, that investment goes to the right countries, it goes to the right type of business and sector within those countries, and that if that investment or those businesses are contributing to harm in developing countries, that the accountability mechanisms are in place to um, call that to account or to prevent that. And I don't see any of that happening at the moment. Yeah, I think, I mean, I I agree. And I think it's worth perhaps stepping back a little bit and seeing the bigger debate to which the, into which the UK is this UK debate is feeding, which is really about what is the role of private investment? And beside that, what is the role of aid? And how do the two interact? And I think the first thing to say on private investment is that it's extremely important. And I don't think anybody denies that, you know, in developing countries, private investment is about 25 percent of GDP on average. So it it provides a major part of their strategy for developing and ending poverty. Um, But most of that is domestic private investment and foreign investment is, you know, more or less a bit less than 3% of GDP on average. So that's one thing to bear in mind. It's We're mostly talking about how to mobilize domestic private investment and then what can we add with international private investment. But then when you think about what is the relationship between that and aid, you get into quite a lot more um, complex discussions. And I think that the main problem we're having is exactly what Toby said at the beginning, which is that people are presenting it as if in order to reach our shared goals to end poverty and meet the sustainable development goals, it cannot be done in any other way than mobilizing trillions of private investment. And the problem is it really depends on what which of those goals you're talking about and which sectors of the economy you're talking about. So, for example, we know health and education, for example, are overwhelmingly funded through 
public finance. And so if we want to meet those goals, we have to find ways of scaling up public finance for those. Whereas in other sectors, you know, the uh, hospitality sector or the manufacturing sector, of course, private finance plays an enormous role. So I think you, there's got to be some gradation of the discussion, some way of getting to a bit more sophisticated discussion. But within that, final point I'll make is when we're talking about the role of ODA, there's a trade-off. You know, If we want to use ODA to subsidize private finance, which is basically what the government is saying, and then we'll have less ODA to invest in more traditional programs to deliver healthcare services or water and sanitation. And that's the stark choice that we're facing. And I think that's also the kind of the, the the subtext, if you like. That's the agenda there. That it's not an addition. It's not in any way being put forward as on top of or in addition to 0.7 percent. It's instead of and as a way of kind of moving away from government commitments to continue to provide that level of ODA in the traditional form. I think that's right. I can see why it's tempting. I mean, this idea of a win-win is always is very uh, seductive. I think, um, especially for a government in position of the one we have, where they know that aid is is not politically necessarily very popular with their supporters, and, and you know that there's you know there's eighty trillion dollars sitting around looking for somewhere to go, uh, and the idea that somehow if you could just get that diverted in the right direction, everything would be fine. And the SDG, you know, the gap to finance the SDGs is very large. Um, you know, I've seen figures of sort of two and a half trillion for for the sort of in, infrastructure sort of costs and another pretty much the same again for a lot of the social costs that, that, that Jesse was talking about, education and, and, and health and so on. So it, it is very tempting. Um, but unfortunately, that doesn't make it work or make it true because, as Jesse and Liz have said, there are several problems and we've kind of tried to simplify it down to basically quality and quantity. You know, can you actually get enough finance to flow in the right direction? Because there is a big question mark over whether there's the uh, the pull. Are there the, is there the project pipeline to attract enough investment? And then there's a, a question over, you know, whether there are investors um, who are looking for this kind of investment, this kind of risk, and, and, and who will not look at profit as, the, as a primary motivation. And there are some, but they're a very small, it's a very small part of the global pot. So there is a big question over quantity. And then, of course, there's this huge question over quality. And I absolutely agree, you know, that, that there are serious questions about simply repackaging uh, profit-motivated investment um, as kind of development finance. So, so yeah, sort of quality, quantity, all of that is is problematic. But you can see why politically this is attractive. Yeah, and it does. It definitely feels like there are lots of unknowns, as you've both said. There are kind of lots of questions that remain on this topic, and I think there is a feeling that this agenda is moving very fast. And we talked about the the gaps in evidence and this narrative of mobilising the millions to trillions, but actually, the evidence isn't necessarily showing that. So I just want to push you slightly. In terms of this agenda, what are the big questions that we should be asking? You know, we talked about potential opportunities and how it could be uh, quite an attractive option. What kind of evidence would we need to see to think actually, okay, so this is this is a possibility. We should engage more with this agenda. Well, I think we've mostly been focusing on the, the role of aid, which, are, which I'll stay on in, and I'll come back to in a second. But I think before we talk about what's the role of aid, in this, the first important thing to say is, of course, if we're interested in increasing and improving 
private investment, both domestic and international in developing countries, we're not going to look at aid as a first, second, third, fourth, fifth, even the tenth issue. You know, we've got to talk about lots of other things, we've got to talk about lots of other things to do with investment climates, to do with um, how our companies are regulated, to do with the way in which the global economy is managed. Can we avoid uh, debilitating crises, developing countries? Do they have the right tools they need to manage foreign investment? How can they mobilize their own investment? These are big questions outside what we're talking about today. Um, and before I go into ODA, one important point to make there is, of course, the public investment that's made in developing countries is absolutely vital for that private investment. So if you look at the surveys of what motivates foreign direct investment, issues like the quality of the workforce, education levels of the workforce, the quality of infrastructure, which mostly delivered by public finance, these are very big and important things for private uh, investors. So public investment, good public investment is very important for this agenda. If then we get on to the discussion about the role of ODA, I think there's a number of different important questions that arise. Because it's relatively new, this idea that we'll start to use a lot of ODA to subsidize private investments, we don't know a great deal about how it can be used well. So there's definitely a lack of evidence. There's a real problem with the rules that uh, govern how governments decide whether they can use ODA for this. So they were agreed at the OECD last year, but it was a, a very poor agreement. It wasn't detailed enough to ensure that ODA won't be misused. And hopefully in the next couple of years, they'll tighten those rules up a lot because at the moment they're wide open to abuse. But the most important point to make, of course, is what is the impact? And that's where we don't know enough. So if we're going to say we're going to invest, you know, as the UK has, billions of ODA into this agenda, and we're not quite sure exactly what the impacts are. We've got a big risk there because we do know the impacts much better for the other ways that we've traditionally been using ODA. And final point I'll make is, of course, the transparency and accountability issues raise their head enormously in this area because the blending of uh, ODA aid and private finance normally means we lose sight of what's actually happening and the public doesn't see as well because transparency standards are not as high as they are in the traditional aid sector. I, I th obviously to agree with almost everything Jesse's, well, everything that Jesse has said, but to add a little bit, I mean, we had a, a consultant looking at a number of specific projects, uh, large-scale projects in Africa in terms of, of, of investment. And one of the things, and they had a very good knowledge of the sources of data and so on and, and, and information. And, one, they, and absolutely to back up your point that private sector finance, the, the transparency issue is huge. You just don't know where it's coming from, what it's being used for. The, the, the level of kind of accountability is much lower. Um, and that's important to, to consider. I think this point about impact is quite widely discussed, and, and and there is a there is clearly a problem. One of the things we've done is we did a survey with our partners on the ground, partners that we work with in a number of different countries, and even we were quite surprised when we asked them, you know, what's your perspective on global private sector finance? So 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 looking at incoming glo global capital coming in from from outside the country, and the impact of that, and. While they weren't always able to kind of, you know, there are some specific case studies, but they weren't always able to kind of articulate every last detail. The overwhelming perspective was negative 
Um, and that quite surprised us. We, we thought it would be far more mixed. And actually, there was this very strongly negative perspective uh, of, of what the impact of such fi uh, finance would be. So kind of the anecdotal evidence is, is not necessarily positive. You know, that's something, something we need to think about. We've, we've done some thinking about what it should look like. And I think probably the, the critical thing is to say, let's get beyond the idea of do no harm. Do no harm is your baseline. That's not, that's not enough. That doesn't say this is development finance. If you're doing no harm, that's great, but it doesn't mean you're actually creating a, a positive transformational uh, change in the country that, you, that you're looking for. So it's not development finance anymore. It's just, you know, do no harm private finance. So you have to build up a number of kind of key indicators. I mean, jobs would be a really important one. And I, I think it was um, Winnie from Oxfam at Davos who, who made the comment that if your investment results in jobs that are not, as she put it, dignified, but that don't create the the, the basic kind of level of, of, of income, of security, uh, of dignity, then all you're doing actually is investing in exploitation. And I think that's where... Um for us at Tradecraft Exchange, a lot of what we do is dealing with the the fallout, if you like, of workers, small businesses who have been kind of at the sharp end of those international supply chains or international investment and have been harmed about it and by it. And I think in a way that's the elephant in the room that the reason that the private sector is so important as part of the solution to the issues of development is at the moment it's actually some businesses are part of the problem so we need to have a much more nuanced analysis of which private sector are we talking about are we talking about global value chains and and as you're saying toby the kind of jobs that might be created in those value chains are we talking about domestic private sector? Are we talking about the small businesses that we work with, farmer-led businesses, women-led businesses, and the quality of the impact that you will have, depending on the type of business you're investing in, will obviously follow. So um, I think the problem that I see at the moment is that there's a very kind of almost ideological fascination with the private sector as this kind of benign entity. And, and we need to move on from that and be much more, differentiate much more between the types of business that can be helpful and the type of investment that works. And I also wanted to come back on a point that Jesse made, which is about the architecture that needs to be in place for investment to be productive. And developing country governments must be able to have the tools to be able to regulate that investment to make sure it creates decent jobs, it contributes to the local economy, it contributes to skills transfer, technology transfer, it supports local businesses. That whole way that investment can actually contribute to development can only happen if governments can make it happen. And the architecture that we have at the moment that governs how international investment happens, particularly through international investment treaties, mitigates against that and makes it much more difficult for governments to make that investment productive. For, at the moment, you know, if we have the existence of investor-to-state dispute settlement within investment treaties, governments are frightened to put in place certain public policy measures that might be really important for fear of being sued by those private investors. So unless we get the right structures and systems in place, none of this can operate effectively. And, um, you know, we're kind of giving license to some potentially quite exploitative practice. So that for me, it's about differentiation and it's about getting the systems and structures right before we even start. I think that's that's exactly right, and I think that's the key point that doesn't get discussed in, too often 
in this discussion, which is that what we're basically talking about is if you're a developing country, how can you mobilize the resources you have in order to best channel them so you can sustainably transform your economy, to eradicate poverty, to find jobs for everybody? It's a massive task for you, and you have to make sure that you use those resources strategically. And part of that job might be subsidizing or will be subsidizing the private sector to invest in regions that they might not invest in, to build new sectors or enterprises, to make sure that the economy develops in a way that creates jobs, to, to support small and medium enterprises. So many different things that you might have in your strategy and subsidizing the private sector is part of that. But then the question becomes, how do you use ODA as part of it? Because if you use aid or ODA, then you're just offering a subsidy to the private sector. What's the best way to do that? And the problem is that the, that discussion is happening in London or in Berlin or in Washington, not in Kampala or you know, in, in, the, in the countries in which it should be happening. Do they want to use their aid to subsidize international firms or would they rather use their aid to build transport infrastructure or education health services. And that's the way the real debate should be happening, I think. And I think that comes to who's having the power in, in making these decisions. It's exactly the same as about where foreign investment goes. I mean, less than 2% of global FDI goes to Africa, and that which does go to Africa goes to a handful of oil-exporting African countries. So the decisions for, for governments to be able to... Um, marshal those resources to support their own development strategies, in particular regional development strategies, is so critical. And in that sense, neither foreign direct investment nor ODA are terribly useful resources because they're not 100% within the control of those governments or those regional bodies who are trying to direct their use. Liz, you touched on a really interesting phrase there about the ideological fascination with private investment, which I think is really interesting. And we've also talked about the impact. And so I just wanted to kind of question what kind of effect this will be having on people, you know, ultimately living in poverty who really need ODA to be going towards helping them um, kind of achieve economic growth and what kind of effects that will be having while ever we're kind of concentrating on this agenda and not focusing ODA where it should be going. Well, short answer is we don't know yeah. uh, because, you know, the evidence isn't there. And because the discussion or the decisions are not being made in the context of a choice, it's almost people people like the UK Secretary of State are saying, well, we have to do this. This is the only way we can possibly use ODA if we genuinely want to develop uh, the economy. But that's not true. So the question should be, what is the best way to use ODA and what is the evidence on that? And I just keep coming back to the fact that whilst it's extremely important to for the private sector to develop and grow and create good and sustainable jobs, uh, it's also extremely important for us to make the public investments that we we know we have to make if we want to meet the sustainable development goals. So ODI did some research estimating what the public financing gap is if we want to deliver healthcare for all, education for all, and a minimum income for everybody. Uh, set at the very low level of $1.90 extreme poverty line. And there we find that even if all countries raise the tax as much as tax as they possibly could and they continue to grow strongly, there's still 48 countries can't 
possibly afford those basic things. And as 30 countries can't even afford half of the cost of those things. So there's a huge public financing gap. And the obvious way to fill that is with aid. So if someone was to come to me and say, what is the best way to use aid, it, that would be obvious and obviously an answer. If you then want to make the case that actually, no, it would be better for us to use aid to subsidize private companies, then I want to see better evidence for that. Sometimes we have to be careful not to fall into the trap, which I think um, NGOs are all too prey to, which is to, to think this is all a pure evidence-based discussion. Um, because we, we, we've been looking at a number of, of areas. We've looked at, at this issue of kind of, you know, the push for private sector finance, global private sector finance, use of aid. We've also looked at the question around tax incentives, uh, which is sort of linked to this because it's, uh, it's, it's promoted as a tool to attract investment. You know, if you, if you want people companies to invest or, or, or investors to, to, to push money and you have to provide the, the kind of tax breaks that will ensure that, that they want to do so. The evidence in neither case is particularly compelling. So we kind of come back to the question each time, well, why are we going down this route? If, as Jesse said, we've got very good evidence of, of the effectiveness and what works and what doesn't with other routes, but somehow we're going down a route where the evidence just isn't isn't so strong and we're not clear about. It, it may be purely ideological, but I think it's also, I mean, and I suppose this is, maybe it's the same thing, I don't know, but but ultimately we can't count out whose interests are being served. You know, there is clearly a kind of a push for opening new markets, creating new opportunities. Um, so who's really kind of, whose interests are driving some of these decisions? And we had the same, we came to the same sort of conclusions with the, with issue of tax incentives being used by developing country governments because there's actually quite a lot of evidence that most governments know this is not a particularly good tool to use. It's not particularly effective. As Jesse said, it is tax incentives, you know, the tax breaks are not particularly high on the list of criteria that, that companies use when they decide where they're going to invest. That They're looking at a number of other things, most of which require public investment in order to attract private investment. So, you know, they want schools, they want a, well, a good workforce, they want good infrastructure, uh, they want stability. What they don't necessarily want is a break on, a tax break on the profits they might make because they're not, that, that's not, not, not really that big an issue for them. So why is this happening? If, if governments know it doesn't work, why are we going down this route? So I think that's always comes, you know, this question we keep coming back to is, is actually about power and invested interests a lot of the time. There's something about a sort of impatience for solutions and a searching for a quick fix um, and, you know, like leaping on to the next kind of fashion where actually what is required is to do more of what we know works and to put power and control back in the hands of the governments um, who are, uh, should, should be leading the fight and um, letting things take their course. And then the role then for us in, in the West does become how do we support that and how do we make sure that the trade policies, investment policies, aid policies that we pursue don't undermine the legitimate efforts of what developing country governments are trying to do. And I think that's sometimes where there are uncomfortable decisions because there's a certain amount of leverage, well, they call it soft power, don't they, that comes with being the donor that enables you to um, influence governments to put in place policies which are, are largely favourable to your businesses, your students, your tourists, you know, your your whole economy. I think, you know, that's part of what the subtext is here. Yeah, and I think you're right. And I think there's a big battle over sensible foreign policy going on 
at the center of this. So at ODI, we're going to launch something called the Principal Aid Index in a few weeks. It's basically an attempt to say that we in the UK and in all countries have got a national interest in delivering on the Sustainable Development Goals. It's in our national interest to help to end poverty, to have a sustainable environment, to, to allow peace to break out around the world. That is our long-term national interest. And if we define our national interest as being, you know, some tax breaks for our companies or a new trade investment deal for a for a large manufacturer we have or subsidizing some of our companies with aid, then that's very short term and it's not really in our national interest. It may help some people and some businesses, but it's not our national interest. And so we're undermining our national interest, our long-term national interest by using uh, aid or, or defining our foreign policy in this way. And I think you see that all the time in trade and investment negotiations. It's the, you know, the kind of quite macho attempt to try and get one over or get extract some advantage from actually the people who are going to be your long-term trading partners. And if you want to see your economy flourish, you will want to see that trading partner also flourish. So uh, I think we, yeah, there's there's a real case for moving away from that kind of, yeah, short-termist approach. Oh, so maybe just to break the consensus slightly here, because <laughs> uh, we're in danger of, of kind of agreeing too much. I get slightly concerned about the kind of self-interest rhetoric overall. I, I think there is, you know, the aid sector has got a habit of kind of retreating into this idea of, of self-interest. And I don't think there's very much evidence that people support the idea of aid because they care about Britain's self-interest. They support it because it's the right thing to do. And I think we should be much more strong and much clearer about talking in that way. And I, don't, I think we'll get a better, a better sort of level of support anyway, as long as we can show that we are kind of actually working in ways that work. And I think, I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, what we've seen recently with Brexit and other areas is, you know, when people hear the words, oh, our national self-interest, they tend to think, yeah, your self-interest, not my self-interest. You know, I, I don't, I, I think you're talking about something else. And, and in this case, we, we are, we're talking about self-interest of the city of London to a large extent. So we have to be careful because I don't think people hear self-interest in the way that we might expect them to. And then secondly, as I say, because I think I think people generally actually don't necessarily see their responsibilities globally um, in, in, in regard to self-interest. And, and you know, we also have to start talking a little bit more about legacy and history and, you know, uh, what, what our responsibilities, not just our self-interest, but what resp responsibilities we might bear. And I think the same then also goes for those investors and those businesses that we're talking about. Um, we were having a discussion in the office the other day about um, the obsession with the business case for businesses behaving ethically, paying on time, you know, not um, exploiting their workforce or whatever. And um, in many cases, that business case doesn't exist. But what does exist is a moral case for businesses to um, respect the society, <laughs> which provides them with their living and their customer base. And it's kind of like the idea of social contract. And I think we need to also uh, be much more robust in how we um, view what is and isn't in business interests and therefore how to get the best out of those businesses. And in that case, when you need to regulate and how you need to regulate and where you're comfortable as a society, setting the bar for what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And I think that's quite pertinent to this debate now is that businesses, investors do cause harm in how they operate around the world. And at the moment, 
we in the UK don't have an effective mechanism for holding those businesses to account and neither do the governments in the countries where they're investing necessarily. And uh, that's something that also needs to be addressed. I think that's really important. I mean, I think that the harm that they do is sometimes to other businesses and to businesses that might otherwise be having a far more positive impact. I mean, I was always fascinated when I sort of was in the fair trade world a little bit with with, with the kind of business models that certain certain business models that were being pioneered within that system. Uh, you know, I'm not going to name names, you know, but ones which were looking at how do we actually share value right through the value chain in a completely different way and so on. And and they they lost out. They could, they can too easily lose out to kind of much larger, uh, more kind of profit motivated, commercially oriented. And, and your point, Jesse, as well, about the importance of domestic private finance and the reinvestment, um, which can also potentially be a loser in the, in this game. So sort of understanding what the impact not is only is on, on kind of on people and citizens, on workers, but also on other businesses that otherwise might be might be able to grow and flourish, not being able to do so as a result. You know, we've touched on how complex this agenda is and engaging with this agenda is. And that there are different layers of of how much we engage with evidence or, you know, or we don't engage with evidence and how much we take the political rhetoric and in the light of Brexit. And there are many kind of lenses um, and ways to engage. But how as NGOs we can engage with this? Because I know, Toby, you mentioned that quite often, you know, there are certain traps that the sector is capable of falling into. And actually, this is one agenda where, you know, I think the sector is expected to kind of come out and be against any kind of private investment but also there is a very intelligent debate and nuanced debate to be had so I just wonder you know from your own perspective and your own organizations what are the ways that NGOs can really get involved in this in a way that doesn't just put us in one camp as being against this for the sake of being against it I mean, fr from Tradecraft's perspective, because you know, we, we've got the charity Tradecraft Exchange and then we've got a sister business, Tradecraft PLC, which is part of the private sector and we're part of the fair trade movement, which is the private sector. So in, in that sense, we're in both camps. Of course, we see the real power of well-directed investment to transform lives and contribute to development. And of course, we see the need uh, for good models of business going forwards. So it's all about reframing what is the private sector and what is productive investment and being really clear about when that works and under what circumstances it can it can be made to work better. So what are the right incentives and structures and systems, as I've said before, that need to be in place uh, to make those kind of businesses flourish and be able to contribute to society um, whilst mitigating the damage of um, some of the more kind of mainstream models. So I, th I think in that sense, we're kind of in between the two camps and we wouldn't necessarily take the attitude of like a, a traditional NGO because for us business is absolutely central to how we see the fight against poverty and the fight for development but it has to be much more differentiated than the debate currently is. I mean certainly as Christian Aid we, we engage 
a lot with the private sector. We have large markets programs, and rightly so. Um, so it's, it's, I think, Jesse, you've said this in the past, um, it's like be really clear to differentiate between talking about private finance and private sector. Those are, are two, two different things, and they are too often sort of muddled together and, as you say, put it into one big block of, oh, that's the private sector, and private finance, small businesses, you know, so many different things can get put in there, and, and it's just not very helpful. So I think kind of kind of keeping that differentiation and trying to build build up that kind of slightly more nuanced rhetoric about what we're talking about, being very clear about that, the pros and cons. And I think also it's incumbent upon us to think about alternatives. As I say, it is very tempting to, to this route of, of let's look towards private finance as a way of solving this, this big finance gap. If we're not going to do that, as Jesse has said, if we're going to talk about the, the need for public finance, how do we make that work? How do we make that work better? What are the other options? And we've talked a little bit about, and it's something we haven't done much thinking about. Maybe that's a gap that we ought to be filling in. Things like the role of domestic investment banks, national investment banks, um, and, and channeling funding through there, or kind of other types of, 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 of looking at how do you uh, mobilize different forms of private finance that might actually result in, the, 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 the more likely to result in the sort of impact you're looking at. If we can't, you know, we need to be sort of looking at this, accepting the need for, for for these kind of flourishing uh, business sectors, but thinking about what is the right route to achieve that. Yeah, I, I agree, I think, with almost everything that's been said. There's definitely a very important agenda on how to increase and improve private investment, as we've said, in developing countries. But a lot of that agenda is about, as we've mentioned, how to improve trade and investment rules, how to give governments, the powers they need to shape their industrial strategies, to build their national development banks, to build their to build their financial sectors in a way that directs finance to where it's needed most, and to protect themselves, of course, from what we know is a very volatile international financial climate. So uh, over the last 10 years, around half of those years, developing countries have actually seen more private finance flow out of their countries and flow in. So there's there's a lot of things that they have to worry about, a lot of things they need to manage, and that's a really important agenda. But I think if I was to make a plea to to NGOs, and I don't work for an NGO anymore, but I have in the past, is that we have to start to remake the fundamental case for public investment, not just because it's a very important thing in its own right. We won't have universal health care. We won't have universal education. We won't have universal clean water and sanitation if we don't scale up and improve public investment. That's a fact. But we also won't have a strong, thriving private sector if we don't also deal with how to improve and increase public investment. And the best example, which Toby mentioned earlier, is infrastructure. And you mentioned, of course, that a lot of the large figures that we hear about the financing gap are constructed from infrastructure, the infrastructure needs of developing countries, which are very large. But the World Bank estimates that 80 to 85% of all infrastructure in developing countries has been publicly financed. And countries like China have financed almost 100% of their infrastructure through public institutions. And the reasons for that are because it's quite hard to find private investors willing to take the long-term risks that are needed for infrastructure. And a lot of infrastructure, like sanitation infrastructure or even much transport infrastructure, does not provide a commercial return. So there is a big need for public investment in infrastructure. And this final point then comes back to the point about thinking about the evidence and thinking a bit more nuanced about these debates. So there are obviously some infrastructure sectors like telecommunications where we would expect to see a big role for private investment. And there are others like sanitation where we wouldn't. And we 
we need to just get that clear. And so when we talk about big figures like there is this large infrastructure financing gap, and we suddenly we can't see how we're going to get the public finance so it can only be delivered through private finance, that just ignores the evidence. If I could, and it builds a little bit, but it's just a, it feels like we're at a sort of bit of a point in time. You know, politics are shifting, but also we know we have to tackle really big problems, global problems, inequality, climate change. And we're beginning to hear the beginnings of some genuine serious talk about how we're going to do that and public financing to do that. Where's the financing going to come from? How's that going to work with with the Green New Deal discussions, uh, both in the UK, US? We, as, as I think it's incumbent upon us to start talking about what does that mean globally? How do we create a global Green New Deal, a, a Green New Deal that's going to not just create a low carbon economy, but a, 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 an economy that's going to work better for everyone? And I think there is a moment of time where we should be grasping that. Um, and, and talking about these big ideas in a big way, really re-energizing the discussion about public finance, what it can do, how we're going to uh, mobilize it. That's going to be utterly critical in that debate. And we're hearing it in the UK, we're hearing it in the US. Now we need to be hearing it globally. And I think if we're talking about kind of big par- big paradigm shifts, the obvious conclusion from some of the discussion that we've been having is that the model of more growth, faster growth that will create fairly basic level of jobs is not necessarily the right um, model that we need to be pursuing in this current time and with the climate challenges that are faced. And um, with that the way developing countries are going to grow and thrive and develop is going to be very different than we've seen um, before. And we need to embrace that and try and find ways of um, working with that rather than continually just repeating the agenda that, you know, you've got to grow and growth equals development. And the more your GDP grows, uh, that that some, in some way equals development. It doesn't equal the kind of development that that I'm interested in seeing necessarily. Fantastic. Thank you so much to all of our guests this afternoon for speaking so passionately and honestly on this issue and for sharing your insights with us. At Bond, we're working with our members to ensure the UK government works with developing countries and civil society organisations to establish the strongest safeguards for aid so that private investment really works for the world's poorest. To get involved, please go to our website or get in touch. (laughs) 